What I Believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Sean Berry is a politician, campaigner and author, best known as the current co-leader of the Green Party of England and Wales, a position she's had since 2018, and as a current member of the London Assembly. Sean recently stood as the Green Party's candidate in the 2021 London mayoral election and was placed third. Sean has written a number of books about how to be greener in everyday life, as well as how to upcycle. And of course, most importantly, she's a patron of Humanists UK. Sean, the last time we saw each other in real life, we were both speaking at a humanist conference on climate change and the environmental crisis in Iceland. And you said then in your talk something that really stayed with me. You said that your environmentalism was about uh, having the, human beings having the chance to still live abundantly, live with abundance. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of people have this idea, I think quite often, um, maybe not of the Green Party itself, but of an environmental movement, that it's a bit dour, a bit down on people, a bit about sort of like living less, doing less and um, and so on. And that's not your approach, is it? No. And it was. I deliberately chose that theme, actually, because I think we can achieve abundance for everybody. I think when you talk about equality, people often think that means levelling down you find that that a lot of the people who who are currently doing very well think that means you're coming for them you're coming for their stuff um but actually i think you know we are talking about as greens building up a, a society where everybody gets to be fulfilled and and fulfilled in in ways that really matter as well so stuff isn't really my priority and I've, I've, I've got policies for the London elections that I'm, I'm trying to make stuff turnover happen as a phrase basically <laughs> so um, I'm saying things to, to businesses like we need to reduce the, the turnover of the economy in terms of resources um, to get down the amount of stuff but the reason we want to do that is so that we can have um, a society where, where everybody can flourish so that we can do things like have businesses where we're repairing things at, at much more local level where people can genuinely go to somewhere that's part of their community to get their stuff repaired to make it last longer and that generates more jobs and we can create a, a you know a society that where people do know each other where there's there's fellowship and community and all kinds of things like that and and to me that's that's what abundance is all about as well as abundance of things like freedom and opportunity and and things that that really people want in their lives they don't want more stuff they don't want to be fearful of losing the stuff they already have people want to have that that unlimited opportunity to get by that unlimited belief that feel that society has a belief in them that's one of the things that I feel in my work with with youth um, services for example lots of young people 
the thing that makes a difference to them when they get a good youth worker or a good youth centre that gives them something to do is this feeling that society is investing in them because they see them as a as a good thing to be promoted and, and supported. And that gives people so much sort of feeling of joy and, and the feeling that somebody believes in them, particularly that society as a whole believes in them. A lot of that gets pulled away from young people in, in today's world. And I think it's one of those really important things. It's about applying that that kind of mindset of, of what could we have? You know, how could we do this better? How could we make everything work well? Um, instead of letting other people frame your philosophy and your values as greens as something that involves less. I don't like that at all. So what's what's distinctively green about that? I mean, obviously, it's human development seems to sit behind um, what you've said and you know, investing in human development and prioritising human development in various ways. But what, what's green about that? Where does that intersect with what people might usually associate with someone who's the co-leader of the Green Party, you know, thinking about the, the natural environment? It's. I mean, we're not just about the natural environment. We are about that, obviously, but we are also about building everything to be sustainable. If you want to characterise something about the Greens, it's about how we look to the future. We want to make sure that everything is is growing in its in its value if not in its consumption of resources and gdp um and i think that that idea that that we're we're thinking about future generations not just in terms of whether or not they've got a habitable planet to live on which is obviously a very that's quite a motivating factor for a lot of greens but also whether or not they will have a good life, whether or not they will have something better than what we've got today. All those things motivate us a lot as well. And it's all to do with thinking a bit more forwards into the future and thinking about about building something better, I think. What is sustainability as a value? You mentioned there the, the, the concept of sustainability. It's something that I've obviously heard you talk about before and, and written about, and it's something of a, a buzzword, but it sounds like it's also um, something of a value for you that you're quite that you're committed to what, what is it as a concept what is sustainability well actually why am I saying the word sustainability I mean basically it's because I'm used to it but right. it's <laughs> a very simple concept of things being able to to be sustained into the future things that things can go on that we're not winding things down the sense that we're, we're running out of things is is you know a worry for a lot of people but the idea that we can have a circular economy or a, a, um, a, a society where we're we're making things better each time it things go round. That's sustainability. Mm. It's about getting things that that carry on into the future, basically. And and yeah, there's obviously a risk side to that, but also a, a an opportunity and development side to that too. And is that an optimistic view? Would you say there's there's optimism in there? Yeah, because think about what we could have. You know, think about the the. The, the ways in which, for you know, for example, you know, I have way more opportunities than my ancestors, the people in my past. Um, that's a that's a good thing. That's a really optimistic thing. But the idea that we wouldn't be passing down the the same advantages, the same progress to people um, is is wrong. So I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, an optimistic thing that, that we're trying to build something better in the future. I think so. And why would it be wrong? I mean, you say there that not not to try to do that would be wrong. But I mean, a lot of people don't live their lives with a view to the future and with a view to passing better things on. Um, it's quite strong, perhaps, to say that that's that that sort of behaviour is wrong. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good point. Um, I guess what I'm getting at there is is not to be too 
egotistical as a generation to think that everything because I've just said you know I've got loads more opportunities than my grandparents Mm. I could be tempted and we as a generation could be tempted to think well that's we're the optimal people then and we'll we'll (laughs) we'll reap the rewards of our of our predecessors and use everything up and leave nothing to people who come behind and that yeah that seems to me to be a very very selfish thing to do that really doesn't strike um me as a moral point a moral position to take so I think I'm thinking about um the the duty you owe to keep things as they were to not to not leave your mark on the on the world on society or on the planet in a way that that leaves scars or or difficulties for people in the future I think that's that's a that's a moral question isn't it that's why I said wrong Mm. No, I think, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because, I mean, what you've done there is you've, you, you know, you're investing in a way in, in future people. And that's not something that everyone naturally thinks about. You know, they can think about people who are alive today and, um, you know, our interactions with them and our obligations to each other. But you're saying something different. It's future people that don't yet exist and, and our ob- moral obligations to them. I wonder what it was that first made you think that way. When did you first start? caring about those people that don't exist yet I don't know and I'm trying to think about this because I I did um very consciously decide to sort of examine my own values and my own philosophy when I was in my early 20s and some of it came out of science and I think you know the the fact that I was aware of um climate change being a, a threat I was also earlier in my life aware of things like the the rainforests and the ozone holes the damage we were doing to the planet became something very very clear for me so I started to think then about you know the damage we were doing and what the what the problem might be but I think when you start to then go and read your philosophy and get your Birch and Russell out and think <laughs> about what you really do think you you do end up taking quite a long view if that's if that's your starting point mm. of of the, the the history of humanity and the, the the possible damage that we're doing to the planet, then you do take a very long view. So you're going to take that same sort of view into the future as well. And I think that probably where that comes out actually. But whether there was an actual, you know, I'm trying to think if there's anyone I actually read which said, you know, you must think about future generations. It's a very strong part of green philosophy. And I think the green core values and philosophical basis, which are the thing I read and sort of decide that that helped decide me to become a green They're, they do talk about that and in a, in a way that's very clear they talk about um every person including future generations having a right to basic material security for example that's one of our core values mm-hmm. um, so that's right in there and greens are teaming up in in the house of lords with um john bird who who founded the big issue who's a lord as well and they're putting a future generations bill into parliament, which is going to be quite nice. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's similar. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. In Wales, they have a future generations. Is it a minister? They have. They now have a, a future generations act in Wales where there is now a watchdog who has to keep an eye on policy and make sure that it isn't going to have a, an overly detrimental effect on future generations. You said that you were helped to think about the future by taking a long view and that that had been helped by thinking about the human past is that something that you feel a part of is that something that you 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 think about do you situate yourself in sort of it sounded like you were very aware of your position everyone alive now maybe his position in sort of the continuous story of people is that something you think about it is yeah when I was at college I did a um an an extra subject you know a 
an extra module as it were in my in my metallurgy degree and that was um with the sort of philosophy department in in the college and that was about the history and philosophy of science so that gave me a really good introductory overview of um the history of science you know from the beginnings um and and that was really incredibly interesting actually and then that did give me some really interesting things to study things like um darwinism and the way it gets abused for example i know mm. humanists are very are very good on um on this kind of topic and and did i did a whole um essay and and read an awful lot about um social darwinism and and the the mm. kinds of pieces that go on and when people get overexcited about a new theory and start applying it in, in wrong ways and using it for um for for really quite you know quite scary purposes things like eugenics and and mm. things like that so I, I read all about that but also yeah looked right back into sort of human history of, of thought and things like that in a very sort of Jakubinowski kind of way and and yeah that, that all was the humanists you're inspired yeah. by all the humanists <laughs> yes so they were a lot of humanists were in that <laughs> curriculum I believe that's excellent um, isn't it but it was only it was only um you know for, for one year I went to to you know a couple of lectures a week it wasn't like I didn't read <laughs> it but it was nevertheless such an introduction to um all of those kinds of aspects of science and 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 took me out of what I was studying day to day, which was the you know the very specific applications of um, material science to um, you know, quite high tech things like nuclear power stations and and um, jet engines and things like that. So I thought that was really that was great. That was very that's what that's what an education is all about, isn't it? Science, um, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what an education should be about. I think <laughs> um, science is. You mentioned science. Um, and again, and I remember when we first met, it you, was one of the things that you were quite keen at getting involved with the humanists to to demonstrate, as it were, that um, people involved in green politics could could actually be quite pro-science. Mm. Because there had been, um, you know, in, in the past, as I think there is still today, at least in some countries, um, a bit of a whiff of anti-science about uh, about green politics or green policies or the positioning of some green um, political movements. You said a moment ago there that you saw that, well, obviously you've just described your education in science, but you also said a moment ago that science, it was science that revealed the harm and the damage that was being done um, to the world. Do you also think that science is, is the way to provide the solutions? Uh, yes, I think, I mean, you know, science is a neutral thing, isn't it? It's not a good or a bad thing. And I think the if you've got to think about, again, historically, about the period in which the Green Party grew up, which is um, the, the 60s and at the very beginning of the 70s, the, the damage that was being done by some practices that had come out of, you know, scientific um, knowledge and progress was, was really starting to come home. And the, the problem that had happened was, for example, with pesticides and and um chemicals on on farmland the the science had developed a great thing and then society had applied it in a way that just did not have foresight or precautionary principles or or really was was measuring the harm it was doing as it went along to see if there was a problem there was there was a lot of bad science going on and overuse of of discoveries um so things like silent spring and um the foundation of of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and the Green Party, they all happened around this time. And I think the character of them probably did therefore come across as quite anti 
science, if that makes sense. Mm. And by the time I became a green, um, and by the time I was at school, um, what was going on was a lot of scientists were starting a movement to to be very very clear that they were issuing us with a warning about climate change and climate chaos ensuing and so I think for the generation of greens that I'm in um, our position on science is is not as suspicious it's it's very much a more balanced view of well some politicians will will go hell for leather with a new discovery and not apply the precautionary principle Mm. other politicians are so caught up in the prevailing model of what is oil-based capitalism that they're not going to listen um, and their um, vested interests and their their sort of traditional ways of thinking and their reluctance to change are all going to get in the way of acting appropriately and timely in response to the warnings we're getting from other scientists so i think there's there's definitely a much more balanced view of, of what science is in within the greens of my generation but yeah culturally i think that the early greens were very much about don't don't take every word you hear from scientists as um as gospel because look what has happened in these various examples that we have and that's that's a rational position to take up mm. you charted a sort of middle way there when you you were you were sort of positing two extremes of, of, of politician, the very precautionary and the very um, hidebound. Um, and and you, you're, you're implying that your ideas are a sort of moderate ideas, the middle way between those two extremes. Is that right? I, I would like to think we're... <laughs> well, I wondered if you do. I mean, do you think of yourself as moderate or radical? Yeah, I think, I think we're quite empirical, to be honest. Um, a lot of the Greens that I know of are scientists by their education um so not only me but um uh, natalie bennett amelia womack um rosie saxton carla denia who's a um, leading counselor in um bristol we've all got that kind of background and i think we are about the evidence and we don't we we understand the moral risk there is of being um tied into to, to large corporations and um, having to depend on donations from um, the sort of the established order of things. And so we resist that. We try and maintain our freedom of thought, our ability to be acting on behalf of society as opposed to the people who pay us. And I think those are really, those are really clear sort of moral things that go along with having an evidence-based and a, a scientific approach to, to the policymaking. I think some really good stuff. To take our recent um, update to the drugs policy, for example, I mean, that was incredibly carefully done by a whole group of people in our drugs policy working group, most of whom have medical or, or scientific backgrounds, um, who went off and collected evidence, got um consulted with all of the groups working in these areas and worked through a very well thought out policy that was that's incredibly comprehensive about exactly how we might treat drugs in a more rational way as a public health um, emergency rather than a criminal justice issue and it's just really really good for for all of that having taken place and I think that's the kind of thing I'm most proud of within the Greens when we do that kind of work. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. 
If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the Humanist Approach to Life, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. Coming on then to, to, to some political values, I mean, we've, we've strayed into this territory already, but um, completely political values. Um, you mentioned there obviously being attentive to the evidence base. So I'm, I'm going to assume that um, you know, evidence-based policy is important to you, obviously, from what you've described. Do you think that um, evidence-based policy is faring well at the moment in our democracy or in others? No, and it's not just that. It's the it's the spirit of inquiry, the the acknowledgement that you might not know the answer, and and you might need to, um, you you know you there's there's a real gap in how we've approached the coronavirus crisis, where the kind of politics of I will declare my policy and stick to it and and strength and the appearance of strength will win through and in the face of something as scientific and and empirical and, and all of that that is the virus that you can't argue with it you can't impose your will on it you have to do what's rational and the evidence base for what's going on has, has changed all the time there's new discoveries being made there's new options for action there's different vaccines and treatments we'll have all sorts of different things we could do and we will lack a strong evidence base because these are new things but we'll have to be thinking about you know what we do know what we don't know trying to make sure our decision making takes into account precautionary principles and risk and and at the same time being very very organized um, about how we how we do things this is the one of the most complicated problems that our government has faced and there was no way of treating it simplistically and yet they they seem to have sort of tried um, and they failed to change course when they needed to and all of that really upsets me and I just think we have a lot to learn from what's gone on in the virus um, pandemic so far and the calls that there are for a public inquiry into this are right they're not political calls to assign blame halfway through something they are genuinely a request to learn as we go along. And that's really, really hard for us to do in the current political system when everything's so tribal, so based on two parties. Is that what you're attributing it to? I mean, you're saying, obviously, you're you're saying, um, you're implying that it's quite radical to say that policy formation should be led by the spirit of inquiry, which is quite an alarming thing to say in itself because it sort of brings us up short and says oh well you know is that the case at the moment then the policy formation isn't being led by the spirit of inquiry um, but if it's not and if you're right um is it tribalism in politics or opposition oppositionalism in politics that you think is the barrier to that yeah exactly that so so somebody is proposing to hold an inquiry into what went wrong and and, and to do it properly so that we learn as we go along and then the other side can only react to that it seems in ways that are either you're you're threatening my judgment by by trying to have an inquiry into it to to blame me for it Mm. um and people then see the the other side as being unnecessarily political about an issue and nobody's saying look you know admitting that that none of us really knew what to do initially it was not obvious that we're all learning that obviously we were going to make mistakes but we need to examine those mistakes and learn from them in an honest way um and that just isn't coming through at all there's a there's 
it's going to be absolutely politicized this this question of how we learn from this and that and that isn't going to be right that isn't a scientific way of approaching it what do you believe should take the place of oppositional politics i mean you know you can because science it's, it's not just the case that one can just follow a scientific trail um and then the answer will be at the end of it obvious for all to see there, there are values that you know shape our our approaches and different values are available and we have to choose some values to be the ones that inform our our joint you know um approach as a society um, but if it's not through political oppositionism that we sort of decide what those values should be how would you what would you replace that with in politics well i think i think political debate is really important and debating those values is exactly what politics is all about but i think a system where all the powers concentrated in one place and then it all transferred to another place is very very unhealthy and i think we need to have more cooperative politics so that Debates don't just take place at election time and then someone wins and then they're right about everything for the next four years. Mm. I think something that's a lot more cooperative where nobody wins all the power, where there's always going to have to be cooperation between the people who win on a continual basis Mm. so that when each issue arises, there is a debate Um, at the moment. I mean, we've just spent, I'm obviously a... um, remain supporter i wanted to stay in the um the european union but and having lost that initial referendum i you know it was really hard to spend those four years watching every step of the way things going wrong and if you're you know even if you accept that the the goal is to exit the eu in an orderly way and maintain as many benefits as possible um you you weren't allowed to say that things were going badly because the answer was always, well, you lost, so shut up now. And that is unhelpful. That is extremely unhelpful politics. And that is actually the way that our current electoral system is set up to select a government, one that will have a majority and be able to tell the other side to to, to shut up for four years is not healthy at all. I think every, every issue ought to be debated in a way that's that's doesn't happen there so is this about power then because it's the case that i mean a lot of our a lot of our life and our structures in in this country are oppositional everything from the you know the the law courts where you have advocates on two sides um to politics where you have you know like you say a winner takes all approach um is it that spirit of oppositionism that you're that you don't believe in or is it the the spirit of oppositionism specifically in relation to power and and the taking up and and, and wielding of power that you object to i it's a it's a bit of everything that you just said effectively yeah um i think you know i don't i don't like the idea of people one person having all the power i don't like the um the idea of having um I, I, actually it was in one of these essays that i've been reading the essays by ian forster and uh, the original what i believe essays yeah so the idea that you end up with a um a particular sort of strong person in charge of things i'm trying to think what it is um that's what it, ian yeah. forster was writing at the time about the strong man approach and of course he, yes, was, exactly. he wrote his essay in the 30s when it was really um a pertinent question yeah. the idea that the people just would want to look up to one strong man who a winner takes all and then the winner goes on winning forever you know that sort of approach yeah exactly so i, I fundamentally don't agree with that idea this is why we have co-leaders in the green party and we right. all i was going to ask if that was why because you're not just you're there are two leaders of the green party at any one time yes i mean it's not actually compuls- that. it's not compulsory okay but there have been 
now um, two sets of co-leaders in a row for the Green Party. And if you look around the world, what you find is most Green Parties around the world either mandate or allow for co-leadership. So either there's two separate people elected who will share the job, or as in our system, either one person or two people can stand as a team and it's more of a job share kind of situation where we where we stand but that's really popular amongst green parties around the world and that is very much part of our philosophy and our values that we don't like to concentrate power in one person we don't really believe in the, the strongman figurehead idea mm. and um so we yeah we often have co-leaders and that and that then i think is great me and jonathan do that i've stood twice now to be the co-leaders of the greens and we've we've won and we've tried to get across to people that we like this model because it says something about what we do as a party when we have power, which is devolve it, which is share it, which is try to exercise it in a way that's cooperative. And I think just having the co-leaders sends that signal and, and gives a sort of character to, to how we behave as well. And you'll see us doing that now on, on councils all across the country where we are in sort of shared administrations with other parties and that's quite common in local councils it's um it's a different kind of it's, it's a very similar to system to the Westminster system but because people vote for their local councils often in a batch so you have two votes or three votes quite often people will split their votes between parties people are not as tribal as all that so you quite often end up with no overall control on the council um you end up with independence and, and people from different parties having to cooperate to form an administration in a way that's much more like Europe and you'll see you see quite a few greens as part of these cooperative administrations and is that what you favor a, a cooperative sharing of power still between different parties but a sort of conscious and visible yeah, sharing of power we distribution do. of power and and obviously we we were last met in person in iceland and there they yeah. have i think four parties in their mm. um administration and one of them is the the quite sort of traditional i mean i would say right wing but in a more sort of small c conservative kind mm. of um the sort of farmers the rural party are in the government with the with the greens and and the, the, the left greens in iceland and i think that is that shows that sort of spirit of of wanting to get together to do the best for the country as opposed to just wanting to win all the power and that and that suits us down to the ground um i think it's, it's a really really good thing about us and then generally in as well as sharing um, i keep talking about parties and politics but i think one of the other important things we do is we try and share power to the level at which it's best exercised so decisions that affect your local area ought to be made by your local council <laughs> um decisions that affect part of the country ought to be made at a, a regional level so in London I'm very very lucky to be a London Assembly member because we have got that um, in between regional level of government where we've got the mayor who has too much power obviously I think um, but we have the mayor and we have an assembly that scrutinizes them and the assembly is elected under PR so there's there's not a big majority for Labour in the assembly um, they have to work with other parties on on some issues to get motions passed and things like that so that's that's all much more healthy and I'm very lucky about that and there's obviously areas of policy where decisions are best made at that level things like transport for London and people always say to me um, when I talk about public transport because I'm from London they're like oh well you can't you can't you don't know what it's like to be <laughs> then you're so lucky you've got all that public transport but it's not a given that London would have amazing public transport that's been built up 
through having the strategic right and i mean when we were young it didn't didn't have very good public transport when we were young i mean that's no even within the time i've lived in london the north london line the the old the old railway line that we used to call the free train that was terrible that's right (laughs) um that was no use at all and now it's been transformed by regional level investment into the london overground which everybody loves and is air conditioned and is amazing in the summer Mm -hmm. and all of those things so those those decisions are clearly better made at a regional level well i was going to ask why do you believe because I mean, there's you've sort of part answered that question. I was going to ask, why do you believe that um, decisions or power should be sort of distributed in, in, in this way? Um, is it because you just think you make better decisions that way? And by better, you mean decisions, presumably, that deliver better results for the most people? Um, or do you think that there's something, you know, empowering about having just the decision in your hands? Because there are two, yeah. you know, two uh, possible ways of... It's both of those things. Both. So, okay, yeah, you want both. <laughs> there's, a, there's an organisational question, and this is a lot of these have come up during the coronavirus crisis. Things like how best to organise test and trace. You know, do you do that through a centralised app, or do you do that through local public health networks? We've been having those debates, mm. but there's also the, the the democratic principle of power being as close as possible to the people it affects, so that you can take a genuine view of that from where you are you can look upwards and say that decision that's about to affect my life in a particular way I can I can impact that by by my votes or my engagement with the other democratic practices within what's happening at the right level so it's about closeness to the people that it affects and and clarity of decision making so that people can see how their engagement with democracy impacts their life and also the need for for autonomy as well that's another important principle. the individual need the personal need for that or uh autonomy at every, again at the yeah. right level every 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 <laughs> side of things so yeah where a where a country wants to be an individual country that should be allowed um and the idea that that you know, Wales and Scotland might be independent. Those are things that, that the Green Party are in principle in favour of. And you know, in practice, we're getting ready for, for Wales Green Party to become separate from the England and Wales Green Party, because at some point that will be practically possible. And it is in our, in our values desirable for the Wales Green Party to be autonomous. Do you believe, though, and this is sort of moving away from politics more to, you know, the personal the through through what a lot of through a lot of what you've said there are two things running on the one hand you're very strongly in favor of um, human development which sort of implies the the personal development of the individual right because they're the person who will be empowered who will be living abundantly and and, and all the rest of it and then you're also um making arguments that are quite strongly about you know whole populations and I just wondered where, where for you, you could answer just for your beliefs, because they're the ones we're interested in on this podcast, but there might be sort of like a green view on it as well that I'm from you know, green philosophy that I'm not aware of. Um, that balance between uh, the individual and the community, is there a, a sort of a set of reflections about where that balance lies for you? Um, one of the things I, I personally get involved in quite a lot is sort of freedom and human rights and and free speech and anti-authoritarianism and I think that I'll never get away from that I you know there are there are um some some debates within the greens that that 
I just I, I don't support some things. They're not there in our policies. But some people have said, for example, that there should be a committee that can veto um, democratic decisions. And I'm, right. I'm and I and I just think, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, that's getting a little bit authoritarian. Who chooses the experts who are going to be mm. this committee? Then? And what are the grounds that those people think? Because because they because they don't think because they think democracy might deliver bad decisions. <laughs> I mean, it's the future generations kind of right. idea. It's the idea that some people then represent all the future people. And because there are so many future people, if you think about it, um, right. they, they should have a veto. The and guardians like, of the future yeah, people get to yeah. veto the... <laughs> and I'm like, no, exactly. So I draw the line at a veto, basically. They right. have a voice, but they don't get a veto. And that is that is where I start to draw the line. And things like um, facial recognition, um, new new ideas that... that have that pose a threat to people's individual freedoms and individual rights I'll, I'll always come down on the side of individual rights when it comes to that um, right the police are you know pushing and pushing ahead with facial recognition on the grounds of essentially public safety and I'm not convinced and it will take so much to convince me that that technology that which has so much potential to impact on your freedom of movement your freedom of association your freedom of expression there's so many human rights that are engaged by the idea of having databases of images of where you've been and knowledge of what you've done and I just yeah that it would take so much to convince me that that was a good technology to be using uh, and I'm really I'm so much in favour of, of essentially banning it as a, as a real threat to to all kinds of things, um, and it's not it's not properly done in law at the moment. It's there's a big grey area it slips into, which is the sort of existing rules there are on normal CCTV that just takes mm. pictures and would take an awful. There's there's too much effort involved in. Um, going and analysing CCTV to see where everybody has been. But facial recognition offers a shortcut to a, basically a national database of your movements. And I, yeah, the, the law as it stands is basically that as governs ordinary CCTV. And so it thinks it's being slipping out. It's being used by um, private companies in ways that the police wouldn't even dare to do as well. So it's very worrying. Very. It sounds like when it comes to it and there's, a judgment to be made or these two things are in tension you tilt towards the individual and I do I do I know and I think <laughs> it's, it's funny I, I, I tilt towards that because um in the end what what are we human for you know in the end you know what what is what is being a human if it's not to be um a free individual um and I think that's you know, we can't always subsume ourselves into the common good. Um, but giving other, but the point is to give the individuals the democratic responsibility for the guardianship is is important to me. So, um, you know, the, you'd hope that by debate, by argument, by good democratic structures, um, the the free human individuals who can all vote on these things would come to the right decision. And if they don't, that is their responsibility and I think it's important that we have responsibility we have the ability to make mistakes and that is a, that is an important freedom too. Abundance, optimism, improvement, the long view of human history, the spirit of inquiry, the distribution of power, democracy and freedom. Sean Berry thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you. That was Sean Berry telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the seventh episode of the third season. We'll be releasing new episodes 
every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about Humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm-hmm.